0: Hi, hi! Welcome to More Than Theology, the Pathways College podcast. And today we've got a very special guest, perhaps our biggest name that we've had on our podcast so far, um, and it is Dr. Peter Lynam. For many of you, he's a really familiar face or a familiar voice. It depends on whether you're watching this or listening to it. Um, But he's a a well-known scholar of religion and religious history in New Zealand. He's somebody that I remember as a kid seeing a lot on television, uh, the sort of media's go-to religious expert Um, to comment on whatever religious topics were being covered at the time, um, and certainly just led a sparkling career as a religious historian. So a very well-known name, and um, somebody that we're really lucky to have on the podcast today. And um, today I really want us to particularly focus on his book, Sunday Best, How the Church Shaped New Zealand, and New Zealand Shaped the Church. This is published by uh, Massey, uh, about 2017. So it's a relatively recent book and one that I found really interesting. And I just wanted to have a chance to pick his brains about it. But we will talk about some other topics as well. So Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be with you.
0: Tell us how Sunday Best came into being.
1: I really wanted to put a lot of the things I have been writing on and speaking on on so many topics over a long time together into a book because I felt as though I'd been taking bites in all sorts of directions but many of them were unpublished papers lots and lots of material well I guess I've got quite an eclectic interest in the mm. lots of aspects and somebody said to me afterwards one of my colleagues at Massey said you know You call yourself a historian, but you're more an anthropologist because you're interested in how people behave. You're not necessarily, in Mm. this book, focusing on particular events at all. You're entirely studying on how a community works or worked. And Mm. I thought that's true of a lot of what I'm intrigued by is what makes communities distinctive. And especially the Christian community has its own particular kind of rhythm to it. And I was trying to trace that. That's a really
0: fascinating observation about being an anthropologist. And it makes me wonder, you're both an insider of the church, um, but as an anthropologist, you also have to be able to take the perspective of of an outsider in, in a way. How do you manage that?
1: This is one of the challenges uh, that I've always faced in my career. People, for example, sometimes after I've given a media interview, express disappointment that I haven't defended the church more vigorously. And I think the answer has to be that you can't really look at any religious movement without a certain degree of detachment. If you don't get that detachment, then you're always in the defensive mode. And I have to say, as a younger person, I was much more defensive than I am now. I, I, I had the general feeling that, you know, if, if this is God's work, God will stick up for it in God's own way. Um, and I owe it to myself and to the people I'm talking to, to understand that they are coming from a great diversity of backgrounds. And I really want to speak to to everyone. And of course, some of the things that have provoked me most deeply have been when an outsider's perspective on the church has suddenly revealed an aspect that actually I knew was there, but it wasn't really to put in words. I mean, for example, years and years ago, somebody talking to me about English churches in the 18th century said, and 19th century said, every time... They finished a building project, they start a new building project. And he said, I don't think it's about the buildings at all. I think it's about keeping people financially committed to the institution. And as suddenly as there's a lot of truth in that perspective, it's time I looked around the corner at issues.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I really appreciate that insight about, um, you know, a certain degree of detachment. And I wonder if, too, that may be part of the reason why you have been called on so regularly by the media is that they perhaps do get somebody who is able to, knows it intimately, knows the movement intimately, but is able to also give sort of a quote-unquote objective perspective. So um, really interesting. So um, you're obviously drawing on a lifetime of research. You mentioned that you were picking on papers here and there and scraps of uh, work that you've done all over the place and putting it together. Um, In research and writing this book, though, was there anything that really struck you as really surprising or unexpected?
1: Oh, I got caught up on specific chapters following through topics that I'd never really consistently thought through. Um, And, for example, music came to fascinate me and I was trying to work out uh, how is the range of music sung in New Zealand churches different from in other churches and then I started digging around in all sorts of directions and consulting people um, the late Guy Jansen was somebody I consulted quite a bit he was at the time writing a book on music in New Zealand and so I kept pushing against generalisations to work out how much truth is there in this and sometimes i couldn't find really find the answer completely but it was fun once i divided the subject up into some sort of classifications i needed thoroughly to research each part of the topic to make sense of it
0: yeah and one thing i just really enjoyed about it reading it through it myself is there are all these sorts of things i mean you mentioned the music and scripture and song, you know, and you talk a little bit about how that came into being. And, you know, that was just, for me, a given. It was just as if it had always existed. And, of course, that's not the case. And you're uncovering that history um, is really fascinating. And I think for any readers who have grown up in the church or spent any length of time in the church in Aotearoa um, would find that you are connecting the dots of things that they have just taken for granted. So um, I really enjoyed that about reading this book. The subtitle of the book is How the Church Shaped New Zealand and New Zealand Shaped the Church. Now, I could be wrong here, but my impression reading the book was that um, it's happened more that New Zealand society has shaped the church than the church has shaped New Zealand society. Do you think that's a fair observation or do you think, no, it really has been a two-way street?
1: I think it's definitely been a two-way street and in fact in the 19th century and the early Mm. 20th century actually it would be the other way around from the way you put it, there was a huge impression made by especially Protestant religious movements on the shaping of New Zealand society. Its attitude to alcohol is the most obvious example its tensions over the issues of war and peace is another very obvious example Mm. its just the the kind of defensive moral tone that often came into the public political space reflected the feeling that churches carried huge cachet of respect from the political sphere even if in practice people observed nominally um the the, t- the current of the churches and didn't you know necessarily go to them No, I think, actually, it's only in the more recent years that we've noticed the waning or the loss of this role. And we assume Mm. that it's always been weak in New Zealand. I don't think so. I think it was very strong at certain points when, I mean, in the early fabric of New Zealand, uh, religious groups, I'm trying to think how best to express this, I mean, they're voluntary groups, but... The first voluntary groups in New Zealand were church groups. And so those religious communities came to be very, very significant, even though that's declined um, since, since now. yeah. Mm. Uh, mm. Today, of mm. course, we can... Obs- the other side of it is more... It, it's harder to perceive. I think... It, And I hope I've drawn very clearly the ways in which um, the church is in fact shaped by New Zealand society as well Um, but it's less obvious in some ways you do need to draw lines to to make sense of that. Mm.
0: Mm. You talk about previously the church's role in New Zealand society and speaking up on moral issues and having a kind of moral authority there. Um, I also remember you mentioning that the church became significantly less um, judgmental um, sometime around the 1960s, but that was a reflection of society in general, that before this time, New Zealand society tended to be quite judgmental right across the board. What precipitated that change? Was it the sort of radical 1960s uh, sort of turbulence, or was it something else?
1: Well, uh, there's been a, a lot of interesting historical discussion on this subject. Um, Jamie a uh, well-known New Zealand historian, talked yeah. about the great tightening of New Zealand society that occurred yes. in the 1880s mm. and loosened out in the 1960s. And the great tightening was when he felt there was a very strong attempt to enforce the standards of British seemliness and respectability on an early colonial society which was anything but this. And then he regarded the sudden loosening of the ties with Britain in the 1960s as the reason for this abrupt breach in the tight, formal judgmental uh, type of society that we had. So it could be down to as simply as the British entering of the European economic community and the the change of the moral focus. However, the problem with this argument is that more or less the same happened a little bit more smoothly in Britain at more or less the same time. I mean, it's the age of... uh, The pill is usually put down, the contraceptive pill, is often put down for the change in the social values of um, once pregnancy um, could be avoided, then sexual constraints largely lost their sharp edge. So it may be that that's Mm. a factor as well. Mm. I have another similar question.
0: You note in your book that Christian faith in New Zealand has become quite privatised. It's something that operates mostly in the private sphere rather than in the public sphere. Um, But that wasn't always the case. Uh, You say that in the first hundred years or so of the church in in New Zealand um, that we were operating in the public sphere. And we've already touched on it a little bit. You mentioned temperance and so on. But what do you think had, what changed that the church retreated
1: into more of a private sphere? Um, There's a delegitimization of religious language in the 1960s Mm. through the 1980s, reaching a peak in the 1980s, and it's very, very striking that quite abruptly Christian people begin to feel embarrassed about stating their Christian values in the public space. Now, I think the reason for that has to do with the whole notion um, that comes about in that very particular mood of the 1960s that uh, we've got to create a clear boundary between the public and private so that society um, allows for differences of opinion. And it was a strong, it's right across the Western society that divergences are, are essential for the public fabric to hold together. Now that means that a whole range of law and of, uh, sort of publicly appropriate behavior suddenly becomes off limits. And it means that the the traditions of the scandal newspapers like Truth and the like, which would talk about extramarital affairs and the like, suddenly are no longer seen as quite appropriate. So it's not just in the religious sphere. It's in, in sexual behavior probably uh, and in a number of other aspects where religion becomes too contentious. And like everything contentious, it needs to be suppressed and so we're closely controlled by political opinion. Yeah, it makes me wonder and this is I'm not really phrasing this as a question,
0: but I'd be interested to hear your just your knee jerk response. It makes me wonder if in recent years where we have seen a bit of political tension and polarization in New Zealand, whether that's come from the line between public and private being blurred to the point where, you know, people perceive the government r- overreaching into the public, uh, the private sphere too much, into our churches, into our homes, telling us to mask up or to get vaccines or whatever, and that's erupted into, you know, some, um, some public kind of tensions. Do you think it's got something to do with the blurring of,
1: of oh. the lines between private and public? very much so those lines have moved you know within a very recent past and people pick out the 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 appropriate shape of that line in their own way and so we get real issues Mm. when people feel that such and such a conviction is my business And, I mean, when you think about it, you know, the mandates debate that we have been through in our society is very much about private, what might have been perceived in the past as private self-interest. I do this in order to protect myself. But suddenly um, health has become the predominant demand of our societies um, in a way that it it never was in the past. And, and so uh, there's a a renegotiation of boundaries and th- those have not th- those renegotiations haven't kept everybody together in them so we're in a much more divided society in some ways although in other areas we seem to be more together as a society uh, so that I mean for example the political difference between labor and national on in some areas issues of public policy are actually much more similar than they used to be. There's no longer a sharp socialist um, capitalist divide, each recognises the other. So that's not the debate, but in other areas of, uh, and they often have to do with what we might call personal decision-making, if they have implication for others. We're all caught up in this. And and you see, religious people can never accept the tidy division that non-religious people want to impose upon them. We've got to protest that our religion has a right to speak loudly in situations, but then we have to accept the consequence if we claim the right to speak Others will claim the right to speak against what we're saying as well
0: mm, that's that's very wise, very sage you know you you talk about the um The fact that Labour and national have perhaps grown closer in some areas over time I'm reminded of my dad um, the story that he tells about when he started primary school as a five-year-old and um, he joined the gang in the playground and it was the Labour gang and then there was the national gang and these little five-year-olds were aligned politically depending on what their parents were how their parents were voting and they um, you know had their little playground spats um, along those lines so uh, funny stuff anyway um, Another thing I want to pick up on is, it was just very brief, it was just one paragraph, but I thought there was a lot underneath this paragraph, and I wanted to dig into it a bit, where you contrast two different approaches to social transformation. You talk about Destiny Church's Enough is Enough campaign, and um, Brian Tamaki has been very active in the public sphere recently too, Um, but you talk about the Enough is Enough campaign. And then you um, contrast it with the Anglicans' uh, hikoi of hope in the late 1990s as two different approaches to social transformation. Could you just flesh those out a little bit and and say, what do you think is more effective?
1: So the Brian Tamaki uh, Enough is Enough campaign, which is a powerfully evocative, superbly evocative phrase in some ways, Uh, but it was a phrase... And this is partly media interpretation, but it was certainly a phrase in which Tamaki believed firmly that the religious basis of the state, that the Christian state, needed to be an enforced aspect of New Zealand society. And that until the state came behind that particular vision that the society would go astray. But if it accepted God's laws, then all would be well. Whereas the Anglican uh, Hikoi of Hope in the 1990s, the church issued a call that we might work towards a restoration of, of lost rights and care for the poor in New Zealand. But it was an invitation for others to be involved in the same campaign that it was never going to coerce anybody, but was rather going to serve as an invitation. Now, just, to, just pulling those apart a little bit, it seems to me that maybe historically, there's a debate going on in the States, for example, at this very moment, on the Christian nationalist front as to whether... Uh, america needs to affirm that it is a christian nation well new zealand would have always in the 19th century affirmed it was a christian nation as long as no authority or power was given to anybody to enforce anything from this that so was a a kind of hollow statement in some ways um It meant something because it framed a context in which law was lived and done and in the Religious Diversity Statement of 2008 there was some pretty strong Christian concern that there should be a statement in the Religious Diversity Statement that acknowledged that New Zealand had strong Christian roots in its history but if this was used as a basis of coercion, I think in our own society it's a disastrous approach to appeal to a moral capital that is not shared and indeed probably is abhorred by a lot of people in our own society. So the ways in which we will succeed is by an act of persuasion and not an act which could be seen as coercive. Uh, Of course, there was also a great Mm. irony because um, the appeal that uh, Tamaki was making to a a Christian state would in the early places have resulted in the suppression of his movement. They would never have tolerated this cheeky outsider calling himself a bishop and making claims to a place in the state fabric. He was never going to be recognized Mm. in that way.
0: Let's uh, talk a little bit about the Open Brethren movement. Um, Pathways College is uh, particularly aligned with Open Brethren churches or um, also aligned with the Christian Community Churches of New Zealand, uh, which is all part of that same movement. Um, Talk a little bit about your own connection to the Open Brethren movement and your own history there.
1: So my origins lie in a breakaway exclusive Brethren group today known as the Reading Brethren or the Kelly uh, yes. Lowe Brethren. So where I grew up in Karamea, um, there'd actually been exclusive brethren evangelists who'd visited Karamea in the 1890s, uh, John Park Salisbury and others, and they had converted a significant proportion of the settlers that arrived in Caribbean in the 1870s. And so there was then a split in that movement in 1917, reflecting a wider tensions within the exclusive brethren. And so uh, my part of the, of the Lynham family had, had created its little hall called the Arapito Hall and we always talked about the top hall, which was the exclusive brethren hall further up the Karamea River Valley. And then there were open brethren that met in the RSA uh, hall further around. So the brethren made up a fair proportion of the population of Karamea um, at that mm. time. Uh, this is no longer the case, uh, sadly. Uh, and so as it happened though, there were also strong links um, with Open Brethren in our family because my my mother, uh, who had come from the same um, uh, Reading Brethren background, um, one of her sister. Well, there'd been a split in the Reading Brethren in Christchurch over one of my aunts marrying a divorced man, and so a fair proportion of the family found their way into what was then Rutland Street uh, Hall, the Rutland Street Brethren. So I had those links. And when I could no longer stand the narrowness of the Reading Brethren, uh, well, there was one particularly notorious case when uh, I was on the Christian Union Executive, and we went away for a retreat, and the rest all could take communion at, at at the church we were attending that day, and I I couldn't without causing trouble at home. And I thought this is just ludicrous. I cannot stay in that place, and so I moved to the local open brethren, which was just around the corner from our house.
0: Mm. And so, um, perhaps less conservative than what you are used to, but you note quite often in Sunday best that um, the open bre- or the brethren, let's just say. Um, uh, probably been the most uh, conservative or even fundamentalist group throughout uh, much of New Zealand's history. Um, I've witnessed, you know, in my lifetime, quite a big change in how Brethren churches do things. And a lot of the things that would have marked Brethren churches off as being Brethren, their distinctives, have been dropped by a lot of churches. I'm thinking, for example, the style of open worship. Um, now, when you go to... Uh, Brethren Church service, in many cases, perhaps most cases, um, it may be somewhat indistinguishable from uh, perhaps a Baptist church, unless you perhaps know a few little key things to look for, like weekly communion or something like that. But um, do you think then, has the Brethren movement, has it sort of remained the the most conservative movement, or has that changed as well?
1: Oh, I think... In recent years, there's a new style of American conservative uh, Bible churches that has certainly made its way into New Zealand uh, and has very distinctly, usually of a reformed variety and it's strongly right. asserted itself. And, of course, there have been um, uh, various Open Brethren Assemblies that have linked up with that kind of movement, and I've been intrigued about the way. Any religious movement that goes for more than 100 years is bound, because of the family ties that link people together, it's bound to become a bit broader in order to accommodate uh, all the people who are part of it. I mean, right. I was involved in the early days of the Christian Brethren Research Fellowship, and that was a fascinating group because it in the 1960s and early 1970s, it was really forcing people to think through issues. That In those days, the hot issue was the role of women in the church. Mm. Um, and I think that issue, probably more than any other, started a process of quite profound change. I mean, the other aspect is that the moment brethren ceased to be essentially a rural movement and sat alongside other denominations in towns, there was a different dynamic involved because involvement of a, in a church in a town of necessity can't be quite as all-engrossing as it may be in the countryside.
0: Mm. Mm. Hey, um, you've been... Gently promoting this book, it's not your own book, but um, Brethren and Their Buildings. These two books, by the way, are in the Pathways Library for those of you who have access to this um, and want to get your hands on them. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what is the significance to the Brethren movement of the buildings that we've
1: gathered in? Well, you're right to say I've been pushing it because I, <laughs> I wanted to get a copy of myself. And then I thought, I bet nobody ever gets to read this in New Zealand. And... Actually, there needs to be a New Zealand equivalent to this book, so I imported an 18 of them, and i still got one, two, three, four left to sell. So if anybody wants a copy, $50, uh, you can have it. Uh, But uh, just contact me. But it's a fabulous book because written by a... I'm a member of the uh, Brethren Archivists and Historians Network, and so i'm quite actively involved in discussions on aspects of brethren history it keeps me dabbling away at little topics in brethren history i've recently written a couple of well i think they're really interesting pieces about the early exclusive the exclusive brethren tensions in new zealand and about uh, also i tried to do a study of how the change in communion and worship patterns And the change in pastors has taken place. And I'm quite indebted to uh, one of my students who did some work on one of those topics. So, you know, I think the architecture, the visual presence of a movement is often quite a powerful way of expressing it. And I think what a fabulous book it would be to have an equivalent book um, for New Zealand Uh, and I've begun collecting photographs and another friend of mine's begun collecting photographs and Richard you should start collecting photographs for me I mean because you think of the churches you've known Um, I mean I can recall (laughs) for example uh, you know the texts on walls that were put at the front of, of a hall yes uh, and sometimes quite interesting texts that were put on. Uh, in in the Reading Brethren, there was a division of opinion as to whether household baptism was allowed or not. And I recalled in... Now, there was an early Reading Brethren um, assembly in Geraldine in South Canterbury, and the, the Morrison family who had led it, uh, they claimed to have had Darby himself, one of the founders of the Brethren, who'd stayed in their their original house and still had the seat which he'd sat in. And they had a text on the wall which said, uh, they that believe on the Lord shall be saved, to which they had written in hand, and their house, taking the text from Acts and just expanding a little bit. And I thought, (laughs) you see, it's (laughs) items like that, or it's those... Barbaric buildings like the old Stoke Gospel Hall with its kind of Spanish deco, absolute blank architecture that dared not express beauty in any way or shape or form was a great expression of these. So there's a, there's a marvellous range of these possibilities, yes. you know.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I'm even just fascinated about the the buildings that have been associated with my own um, congregation, Rally Street Christian Centre in Cambridge. It wasn't always on Rally Street, um, and uh, recently I went down and, and had a chat to the owner of a, a store that it's a it's a boutique, a decor boutique, and a, a, you know, very kind of um, bougie sort of shop that's in an old Oddfellows Hall. But that was where the congregation originally Began. met um, yeah, as yeah. Ba- far back as. I think originally, perhaps in homes, but then the congregation began, or the church began in 1896. So it was going mm. back a long way, um, but then it's hopped around Cambridge and ended up where it is now. So fascinating, and perhaps um, some of our listeners or viewers um, who are connected with the Open Brethren movement might be able to send you some photos as well of oh, the buildings that they're so. connected with. I hope so. You, yeah, you'll get a flood of them. Let's hope so. Uh, You mentioned to me too, just before we hit record, that um, you're working on your own revision of a seminal text, Um, There We Found Brethren. Can you just tell us a little bit about
1: that plan, Peter? Yes, so There We Found Brethren, Um, that was my very first book, and ever since I wrote it back in 1977, I've been scribbling in corrections um, into margins (laughs) as new information has come by, and it is, I mean one th- thing that's marvellous is that now Papers Past uh, has, has digitalised the texts of most New Zealand newspapers and so you can track down Brethren references which are very hard to come by because Brethren are so informal a movement. It's really hard to work out what's going on. But on the other hand, if they want to attract people to their gospel meetings, they'll probably advertise them in the newspapers. And so you can get a certain amount um, in that way, and especially where those campaigns are very successful. And so I've tracked down lots and lots of additional information. And besides finishing a story in the 1970s as I did, In some ways, 1971, that was the high point of the Brethren in terms of its impact on society. 1.1% of the New Zealand population. That was a phenomenal impact. Today, well, they're now much clearer in distinguishing exclusive brethren and open brethren. And so many open brethren, probably because of the strengthening of the exclusive brethren, have become so unwilling to accept a brethren identity. Um, and hence, the Christian... Well, it's a rather unfortunate name as well. Um, but Christian Community Churches is an attempt to kind of recreate the movement. But um, it is far from the scale that it once was. And... That's just the nature of social change that's taking place. But I think Mm. to adequately tell the story today, I mean, you'd have to refocus it. Uh, You wouldn't focus it on the high point.
0: Mm.
1: You'd actually need to reflect on the seeds of decline as well, which have been, you know, pretty apparent in the movement Mm. since then.
0: Mm. 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 Now,
1: looking forward to that when it comes out.
0: Just returning to broader questions, um, to Sunday Best in particular, um, as a historian, I suppose your job is primarily descriptive, although it's interpretive too, but you probably don't like to be um, in a prescriptive mode very often, but I'd love you to just um, perhaps comment on what lessons you think we the New Zealand Church needs to learn from our history.
1: Oh, well, I think the first thing that we need to reflect is that we are children of our time. Just because we're Christians, we don't cease to be people shaped by the present moods and discussions and and debates. Look at the way in which we're now so much more sensitive in New Zealand, from all churches, to issues to do with Māori, um, and properly so. Um, but it's take, it's quite startling how reluctant we have been to acknowledge that until very recently. The whole history of Brethren Māori work is a striking story. You know, those early Brethren Māori workers got virtually no support from the assemblies. And most of them had to give up because they couldn't Mm. fund themselves. So, you know, there's sobering aspects Mm. to stories like this. Um, And I I think we should not be frightened of reflecting that's the hardest thing to shift is the biases that are not actually christian biases they're just cultural biases that are hardwired into us and certainly as pakiha christians mm. we some of those things are deeply hardwired into us to be defensive to be I mean, another one, an interesting one to me is the extent to which New Zealanders today are so very nationalist. Our country is the best, which wasn't actually an attitude of mm. um, early New Zealand. Uh, New Zealanders who so often thought New Zealand was, you know it didn't matter too much to anybody. Today, <laughs> I think there's a real risk mm. that we've got to see the deficiencies and challenges that our society is facing and as christians we've got to think Mm. how willing we are to challenge the society and how strategic we can be if we truly want to for a society to understand more of the christian gospel we have to do some translation and that's the challenge i think
0: Mm. absolutely yeah um,
1: and that's quite a sobering
0: observation about the potential for or the existence of Christian nationalism. Uh, if anyone wants to look into that further or listen a bit further, um, we dig into that a little bit in another episode of this podcast where we look at uh, the book of Revelation. So that's just a little note there for our listeners or viewers. One last question, Peter, and I'll let you off the hook. You conclude uh, talking about the perennial appeal of Jesus, or at least that's something you mention. Mm. Um, and I think this was backed up a bit by the faith and belief survey that came out a few years ago, which found that despite, you know, growing, um, coldness towards mm. the church and the Christian message, Jesus still held a lot of appeal for people, uh, people who perhaps weren't fans of Christians themselves still found Christ somewhat alluring. Um, One of your quotes is the decline of formal religious institutions does not in fact mean that the Christian story has lost its pertinence. There's every evidence of its power to generate new visions. So what would it look like for the church to be more effective in tapping into the effectiveness and the appeal of Jesus?
1: I, I did a talk quite recently on the spirituality versus religion topic. And I I currently think that this is an important clue for us. I think a lot of the people who reject Christianity will often say that they're spiritual, not religious. And from the Faith and Belief Survey, it's clear that about half the people who say they have no religion actually see themselves as spiritual people. Now, it's, of course, a nonsensical distinction, really. Um, There cannot be a sharp distinction between spiritual and religious. But there's a huge lesson for us to learn about what the starting point of people's faith journey is. And I'm really interested about the ways in which people start by a private journey an exploration into this Jesus who has some sort of appeal and maybe in faith expressions that are not even formally called Christian, but they may start with some kinds of patterns of uh, reflections or wanting to go inwards. Christians seem to have given up the space to the Buddhists. Well, this is nonsense. Our Christian faith has Mm. a great deal to do with this Mm. spiritual journey. And so I've been hearing Mm. stories which I find very interesting, for example, of the desire for people to go on retreats, and a church began offering retreats. This was before COVID, I might say, and found that its greatest spiritual impact was in offering retreats that non-Christians wanted to go on retreats. And I thought, how could we facilitate that search, which is very definitely there in our society, which is so spiritually ill at ease, that we could offer them ways of hope and purpose, so that's my kind of vision of an important way forward. And, you know, me, in a funny sort me. of sense, Richard, ideally if the brethren were really like brethren, i.e. if they were very non-institutional, they ought to be very well positioned to do all sorts of imaginative experiments, right. um, which a lot of traditional denominations find right. it very hard to do because they're busy paying off various costs to keep the denominational structure going. Uh, Your denominational structure is pretty light, and um, that could well prove to be a great strength in coming years. Yes, and I suspect that
0: part of the... You said it's a, a bit of a tenuous distinction, or nonsensical distinction, but part of the impulse behind that distinction between spiritual... Um, but not religious, is that religious is perceived as institutional. Mm. And mm. perhaps the less institutional we are, perhaps there'll, there'll be a less of a perceived barrier um, for people too. And I'm actually reminded of um, Lynn Taylor, who's on faculty at, at um, in the theology department at Otago. Her research, her doctoral research, looked at um what brought various adults to faith? And her research was in Australia, um, Christian faith, and found that spiritual disciplines was a big part of it. And for me, that was quite surprising because I'd thought of um, the disciplines as something you engage in once you're well on your ju- on the journey towards um, Christ or following Christ. Um, but actually, in, in reality, it's exactly like what you say, that um, it's perhaps the, the seekers um, that are looking for something like that to engage in. Well, Peter, it's been such a pleasure to have you. And I know that we, there's a lot more there that we could discuss, but I think it's been a really enriching uh, discussion and conversation. So thanks for your time today, Peter. Really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Akitiano.